why don't you grab your Bibles? We're going to be looking at Colossians 1. Uh, this month, we're going to begin a six-week series covering DNA, the core of the local church. You know, every church has a DNA, and it's not just like what doctrines does the church believe? Like, do we believe the Bible is actually the Word of God? Well, yes, yes, we do. Um, and that's part of our DNA. But when we say DNA, what we're talking about, you know, what's at our core? What's the heartbeat of the church? And so a church's DNA is built uh, around many things. And so different churches have different DNAs. You know, some churches are theological orthodoxies, their DNA. You know, some are built around who they send to the mission field. You know, some it's kind of hard to discern what they believe and care about. But for here at Mosaic, what, what is the lifeblood and DNA of Mosaic? You know, what makes us unique? Who are we? Why do we exist? Where are we going as a church? I mean, these are critical questions if you're, if you're interested in Mosaic or even if you've been here for a while. And so we're going to spend three weeks looking at the values of Mosaic and then three weeks looking at our mission. Now, nobody likes the person who only talks about themselves. And that's the danger of doing a series talking about our values and our mission. And you can probably imagine it's like walking into a dinner party. Do you remember dinner parties? Hmm. Whew, those were nice. Maybe. Um, but, you know, lots of crowded people crammed into a tight little room. That's not going to happen right now. Uh, you meet, you have small talk, but then you, you meet someone and, and all they want to do is talk about themselves. And, and they go into like odd details about family drama, sharing too much information. And maybe they share their lifelong dreams that they haven't accomplished yet. And you're like, all I asked was, what was your name? <laughs> and you know, we don't want that to be the case as we talk about the DNA of Mosaic. We don't want you to be like eyeing the door, wondering like, when can I get out of here? You know, it's easier for you because you can just turn off the, the computer. Um, but we want you to consider, as we're sharing all that we hold dear and valuable, that you would consider, are these values that I share? You know, do I connect with these? And if so, I think that is a God alignment. Uh, we fit. There, I mean, there's a fitness or an alignment that is important. Now, you're never going to align 100% with every, you know, with a church on every single issue, and that really cannot be said enough because, you know, God brings together so many different people in the local church, and which is beautiful. Um, but it is helpful when a church cares about the things that you care about. There is a there is a fitness and alignment because otherwise, if we don't align, like our focus is always going to be inward. We're always going to be having these intramural debates, you know, with the church leadership rather than having an outward um, focus toward an unbelieving world. And so today we're going to talk about one of our values, uh, gospel centered. Why? Why of all things can, can we be about, are we about the gospel? And really I think it's very, very simple because the Bible is, you know, we're not making some bold claim. I don't think here, like it, it seems really, really clear from Scripture that this is true, that not that it just mentions the gospel in the Bible, but that the Bible is, is centered on Jesus. And so Mosaic's value actually reads, we believe the Bible is all about Jesus Christ, full stop. God loves you just the way that you are, but he refuses to leave you the way you are. And this good news is too good to keep to ourselves, and therefore every member of the body is called to share the gospel where they are and where God takes them. And that last section, we won't hit as hard here today because that's kind of been the theme of the book of Acts. Um, but I want to ask the question, you know, where do we get all of that? Where do we get that, that big old value? 
I think there are many places we can pull from. And today, I, I, I just want us to soak in Colossians 1. You know, I don't want us to just do a fast read through it. I want us to, to soak in it, chew on it in all of its glory. Because, one, because of our familiarity with, with Paul as we've gone through Acts and this letter Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, you know, while he's in prison for preaching the gospel. But two, because the book of Colossians makes very clear that it's all about Jesus, everything. And so let's look at Colossians 1, 15. It says that he is the image, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Now, when it comes to God, if you want to know who God is, if you want to know what he's like, if you want to know what his tone is, like how he behaves, how he feels, how he responds, you don't have to speculate. You don't, you don't have to play children's games. Like, you can find out. You study. You look and you watch Jesus Christ because he's the image of God. Watching Jesus reveals something about who God is. And so you can see God's compassion as, as he mourns over the death of Lazarus right before he raises him from the dead. You can see his grace as he intercedes for the woman caught in adultery, caught red-handed, and the people are about to stone her. And Jesus says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So Jesus, and then Jesus, like, he, he writes something on the ground, or maybe he's drawing pictures. We don't know. Um, and he says to the woman, has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You know, see, we can see his, his compassion. We can see his grace. But then we can see Jesus' kingliness. If we look at Revelation 19, you know, it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Like, <laughs> Jesus is multifaceted. But you get to see God because of Jesus. And, and this Jesus isn't just in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus makes this radical claim in Luke 24, 27, in like the world's greatest Bible study that ever happens. He says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted all the scriptures of the things concerning himself. So the, all of the Old Testament is talking about him from the very beginning. Everything that is written, written concerning himself, he just claimed was, was the epicenter of the Bible, that he was the epicenter of the Bible. It's all concerning himself. And now we're not going to survey all the books of the Bible, but let me just look at the first three real quick. Just real quick. Genesis, you know, Jesus is the second Adam. That he's promised to crush the head of the serpent in the garden. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, from whom the scepter shall never depart. In Exodus, we see we, Jesus is, is the greater Moses, who leads his people to escape judgment by hiding under the, the blood of the Passover lamb on, on their way to the promised land. He is the true manna from heaven. I mean, in Leviticus, he, he is the full fulfillment of the entire sacrificial system. He is the greater scapegoat whom the sins of the nation were laid upon. And he's the greater high priest, right? Like the Old Testament is, is the scaffolding. It's true and it's good, it, but it's just a mere shadow of what's to come. It's not worse than the New Testament. In fact, now that we have this key, I think of it as a key, it, it, it unlocks everything in the Old Testament, and it makes me actually want to read the Bible, to see that it's all pointing to Jesus, makes me actually understand it, want to read it, all points to this promised rescuer. And so the Bible, and in this passage, I just think it's clear, it reveals what we heard before, that the Bible is about creation, fall, redemption, and restoration or consummation. 
It is a story about God's creation falling into sin and God redeeming and restoring it all. But Colossians 1 doesn't just make the claim that the Bible is about Jesus. Paul says everything, everything is about him. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. No, that's not, not saying that he was the first to be born, but he's the prototype, the template that, that we're made after, kind of like Master Mold from X-Men, right? Verse 16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And so Jesus was never created. He was incarnated, him, and he incarnated himself, but he was never created. For he says here that he was the creator, there he was at the beginning. Before, before time was existing, Jesus was. Before he was born in Bethlehem, he was hemming the fabric of reality. I mean, how? Genesis says that, and God, Elohim, said, let us make man in our image, who? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so think of this, that Jesus is there. He's creating, he's created time. He's outside of time. He created the Son. And when the sun goes around the earth, that's one day. And so that gives us our time. And so at one point, there was no time. <laughs> Let me say it another way just to drive home the ridiculousness of this all and like the beauty of this. He, Jesus, was there in the beginning before the beginning was beginning because he was there before any beginning ever began. Let me say that again. He was there in the beginning before the beginning was ever beginning because he was there before the beginning ever began. Woo! He created all things in heaven and on earth. I mean, think about the artistry he has to create a Mexican tree frog and then to create a Japanese spider crab. Like, he created that. All things visible. What we see and invisible, the angels and the fallen angels, thrones, and we talk about our governments, our politicians, they ought to be looking to see how they can rule as under rulers of the true king. And then all things created through him and then for him. We are seeing Jesus is the apex of everything. All things are created for him. And, and if we're not clear on that, let's look at verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so our very atoms and molecules hold together because Jesus holds us together. I mean, are you getting the isness of, of Christ? Like, this is who he is. This is who he is. He is, he is penultimate, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Like, <laughs> I don't know if you can have a higher Christology than Paul has. Jesus is the head of the body, meaning the church. He is in charge. It is his kingdom, not ours. And so as we remember who we are uh, at Mosaic, we need to remember that we are just one church inside of the big church. I mean, all of us are held accountable to the true head, and there's one kingdom, and it's not Mosaic. There's one answer, and it's not our way of doing things, and you've got to hear this. Like, Jesus is the head of the immovable, uh, unstoppable, always pressing forward church. Like, we celebrate what God is doing in, in other churches, wholesale. Like, we're on the same team. <laughs> it's not anyone's church or anyone's kingdom but his. Amen? I mean, I also need to be clear about this. Like, I don't think it's wrong for us to point out where, where people may be outside of orthodoxy or where they're outside of the scriptures or where they're, they're maybe preaching, preaching fa a false gospel. I don't think it's wrong to be critical of some of that stuff. But in the end, if the gospel is being preached, but musically or creatively, we're just different— if people are loving Jesus passionately with, with a pipe organ, that does not equate to dead worship 
Or if someone is praising Jesus with two turntables and a microphone, then praise God, right? (laughs) And if you think people can't worship God like that, I just think you probably won't enjoy heaven. Because heaven is going to have all different kinds of cultures and styles represented. And so I just say, begin praying right now. Lord, help me to love country music. Because if there's twang in a praise song in heaven, I still want to praise Jesus. He's going to have to do a miracle. I get it. (laughs) But if this passage is teaching us one thing, it's, it's that it's not about me. It's not about you. Like, true, Jesus has done a lot of things for you, more than anyone else has ever done, but it still ain't about you. It says that in everything, he might be preeminent. That means at the center of everything, the apex of it all. Another way to translate that word uh, preeminent is to use the word supremacy. And that word supremacy has negative connotations because some have tried to co-opt Christ's throne and made it the supremacy of white, not the supremacy of Christ. And oh, is it evil. I mean, white supremacy is evil at so many different levels. Racism, Racism is evil at so many different levels. And it reveals the heinousness of this belief that, that, that one group is superior to another group. That one group has a right to the throne. But it ain't white supremacy, it's Christ's supremacy. And he dethrones any who try to steal his glory. He is supreme. He is preeminent above all. But unlike the negative connotations with with that other ideology, his supremacy does not mean another's demise. You say that again. His supremacy does not mean another's demise. His supremacy, and here's the beauty of the the gospel-centeredness, is actually for our good. Somebody say that, amen to that. His supremacy is actually for our good. Verse 19 says, For God was pleased to have all fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Oh, Lord, Paul is just going off. <laughs> like, like, he is breaking out into a praise song here. I mean, through him, he reconciles all things to himself by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I mean, <laughs> whew. But wait, Paul, you're giving the cure before you gave us the problem. What's the problem? We've, we've said God's great, right? And we believe we're great too. No, 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 no. Here's the problem. We can say things like, yeah, Jesus is cool, but also I love my pet sins. I mean, I think here in Waco and East Waco, I, I don't know many who are actually outright hostile to Jesus. It's usually it's Jesus and. Jesus and. Uh, this mentality of Jesus and. We, we worship Jesus and we embrace these other things to supply whatever Jesus might leave us lacking. And so really it's, it's Chipotle theology. Chipotle theology. We, you know, you go to Chipotle, you got you to pick your burrito or maybe you pick your burrito bowl, whatever suits you. You, know, you pick your rice, you know, what kind of rice you want. Pick those beans, you know, what meat or maybe you want some tofu. And then, then, then you got to get that guac. Whew, that guac is so good. <laughs> but this is modern Christianity. Just pick and choose what you like and leave alone the things that you don't like. And that is buffet theology. Like, but Christ would never be one option in a buffet. Like, we see Jesus like that optional guac that, like, that I'm telling you is real good. But some of y'all are like, yeah, Slim's excited about the guac, but nah, I could take it or leave it. No, one, you got to get the guac. But two, <laughs> throw that analogy out the window. Jesus made the ground that produced the tree that produced the avocado. 
He created the sun and the clouds that produced the rain to water the tree. I think we've got to stop tapping the brakes on Jesus' exaltation. Why? Why do we do that? Why do we tap the brakes? Because verse 21, I think there's a big gap here. It says, and you. There's that long gap between his otherness, his highness, and us. And it says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. I mean, we couldn't be more different. Once we were alienated, and we're not just aliens to God, we're hostile aliens to him, doing evil deeds. But wait, I'm a good person. Not according to scripture. It says aliens, hostile aliens in mind. We are hostile UFOs. We are enemies. And here God just shows off. Verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I mean, this is the preeminence of God through King Supreme Jesus. Though having all the supremacy, he reconciles and brings us back into good standing, you and I, by dying for us, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. And another word for what, what he's doing here is that he justifies you. Now, now, to justify something doesn't mean to change its nature. It means to change our view of something. Let me say that again. To justify something does not mean to change its nature. It means to change our view of it. And so take the example of a kid who goes to school. Maybe you're a teacher at the school, and you watch this kid come up to another kid. He balls up his fist, and he just slugs another kid in the face. What do you say if you're the teacher? You say, like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you're suspended. No questions asked. But the kid responds, but, 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 but. And you finally listen to him, and he says, but. If you look in his pocket, he has a gun. And he said he was going to shoot another kid. Well, now that first kid justified his behavior, didn't he? He didn't change what he, he did. He just changed our view of it. It became a good thing and a necessary thing. Becoming a Christian is not about becoming good. It's not about cleaning yourself up to be acceptable to God. It's as Paul says, he's going to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And so Jesus is going to make you that way. Jesus justifies you God, and changes God's view of you because Jesus died for you. And this is why we say God loves you just the way that you are. Like you should know here at the Mosaic, like you belong before you ever believe. That God loves you. You don't have to clean up before ever walking into our doors, if we had doors. And so he loves you just the way that you are, but he refuses to leave you the way that you are. I mean, it's not love to just leave people sitting in their filth. Oh, I don't want to make people feel guilty. It's not love to just ignore the elephant in the room. It, it's love to get down on our hands and knees and bandage wounds and, and help you off the ground. I mean, he loves you too much to leave you where you are. I mean, God wants better for you. And I think deep down we all know that and we want that for ourselves. But here's the kicker. The only way to stay the course and not to give up is when we center ourselves, we center ourselves on the gospel, which is to say, like, I am a hostile alien reconciled to God. Meaning, I am more sinful than I ever will know, and yet I'm far more loved than I ever dare believe. This is the good news. Like, like what, the good news, that, that's what the gospel actually means. It literally means good news. It is God loves you that deeply. And because you're loved like that, you don't have to fight for your own worth. You don't have to crave the attention. I mean, the gospel obliterates any supremacy you think you might have. And it gives it to Jesus, who then gives you all of his love you'll ever, ever want. 
I mean, it's this wild and wonderful ping pong that happens here. Like the gospel obliterates any supremacy you think you have, gives it to Jesus, who then gives his life for you. Like what this means is for, for the church, if we're about one thing, let's be about the one thing the Bible is about. If we're about one thing, let, let's pivot our whole church and our posture towards the center of the universe, which is all Christ-centered. And what did Christ come to do? He came and he brought the hope of the gospel. And so we are not man-centered. And so, so every sermon, every Bible study, every mission, every action is fueled by and geared towards and building to glorify Jesus and center us on the gospel. We will uplift and exalt his name. Will that play out in how we love our neighbor? Absolutely. And we'll talk about that in the coming weeks. But as a foundation, we are gospel-centered. It is in our DNA. And what this means for individuals is Jesus is first. He's first in everything. Jesus is first, and I am not. Jesus is first, not our denomination. I mean, can you say that? Like, Jesus is first and not my political party. Now, some of y'all might be saying, okay, now, preacher, you went from from preaching to meddling. Like, (laughs) no, is he first? Are you able to critique your own party's problems? I mean, it's easy to go after the other side, but if Jesus is first, then your ultimate allegiance isn't to your group, it's to Jesus. And so today, Jesus says, you're in my seat. Repent of the ways that you've tried to take my seat. Repent of the ways that you have put yourself before him. He is gracious and compassionate and justifies hostile aliens. But secondly, Jesus is first. Let that comfort your souls, that Jesus is preeminent over your fears, preeminent over your boss, preeminent over your city, preeminent over your nation, preeminent over this pandemic. He is supreme in the storm. He is in charge and he's holding all things together. Hallelujah, praise him. And rest in his sovereignty and his goodness and his preeminence. Let's pray.